my wife told me this very interesting story uh, about a week, week and a half ago uh, about Elizabeth Elliot. Anybody know who Elizabeth Elliot? A few of you. Her husband, Jim Elliot, and Elizabeth, they were missionaries to South America. And they'd gone down there with several others to share the gospel with this indigenous tribe that had little to no outside contact. And the tribe they were going to share the gospel with ended up killing Jim and a couple of the other missionaries that were with him. And Elizabeth, after you know, much prayer and grief, just in the intervening hours and days after Jim died, she felt the Lord telling her to stay there among the tribe that killed her husband and continue to share the gospel. Would any of y'all be willing to do that? No retribution, no revenge, just grace and mercy in the gospel. She did. She went to that tribe. She lived there with her and Jim's young daughter. I, w- I want to say she was two or three years old, I think three years old, living there uh, among this tribe. And she raised her daughter with these people of this tribe that had killed her husband. Eventually, the people of that tribe got saved, even leading the man to the Lord who was the very one who killed her husband. And years down the road, her daughter grew up, uh, got married, and her son-in-law told her one day, told Elizabeth one day, she said, he, he said to her, there's something very interesting about your daughter. She never complains about anything. And Elizabeth writes that she felt immediate pride and joy at, at, at being told this about her daughter. But as she contemplated this, she started thinking, well, she didn't get that from me. <laughs> she started thinking, my husband could not say that about me. She said, all I do is complain. I'm a natural pessimist. She says, my whole family are pessimists, is what she writes about this encounter with her son-in-law. And then she began to think about, well, how is it that me, a natural complainer, raised a daughter who never complains about anything? Nothing. No complaint ever comes across her lips. She's constantly joyful. How is this possible? And then she figured out what it was. It was raising her in that tribe. She said, because nobody in the tribe, even before they were Christians, nobody in the tribe complained. She said, where we lived there in the jungle, uh, there were, uh, it rained, okay, it, it, in the course of a year, it rained 144 inches every year. That's 12 feet of rain. That's a lot of rain. And because of that rain, it produced a lot of gnats, a lot of mosquitoes, a lot of mud. She said, we couldn't, we had to hike everywhere, walk everywhere, canoe, but even if we canoed somewhere, we have to carry our canoe to get to the water. And so we're constantly caked in mud up to our knees. We're constantly having gnats and flies and mosquitoes all over our skin. She said, the women of the tribe, to, to carry stuff from one place to another, they would have these baskets that weighed up to 50 pounds, and they would strap them to their foreheads and walk for miles through this mud 
through this rain, through these mosquitoes and gnats. And she says, these women, before they were saved, lost as a goose, never complained one time about any of it. And she says, the influence of these people on my daughter was she grew up and never complained, admitting their influence was more powerful than her own over the perspective of her daughter from that point forward and how she had this outlook on life. You see, complaining is something that we're naturally drawn to at times, whether we like to or not. Some of us may have been influenced by those who never complain, and so we're naturally geared toward not complaining. And if you know any of those people, let's, let's surround ourselves with them and hold them up on a pedestal. The vast majority of us, whether we speak it or we simply think it, complain constantly. Maybe it's just we think it a lot. Maybe we don't say it out loud. We've been trained. If we say it out loud, we get in trouble. And if we say it out loud, it just creates problems. So I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to think it. This constant running diatribe in my head of complaining about this or complaining because that person did that or this person said this or this person won't do that. And, and it just constantly goes because politics are like this and taxes are like that. And everything at the store cost a million dollars more than it did a year ago. And it's just constant running complaints. But look at what Paul writes about this. Now, we're going to look at several different scriptures here as we go through this. We're going to start with complaining and then look at the cure for complaining. Um, Paul had some very difficult circumstances. And I would wager to guess, I don't know all of you intimately, but I would wager to guess the circumstances Paul went through in his life were far worse than any circumstance any of us go through on a daily basis. Anybody in here been stoned to death? Any, anybody in here have been thrown in a Roman prison, sitting in someone else's gunk, beaten half to death? Anybody? Multiple times? Anybody ever been shipwrecked? Swam up to shore, built a fire, had a snake bite you out of the fire? Anybody? Okay. Paul had it pretty bad. And look at what Paul says in response to his life circumstance. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He said, do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many things are you supposed to do? Now, grumbling means complaining. Disputing means arguing about stuff. How many things are you not supposed to complain about? How many of them? All of them. I know you're surprised to know in the original language, they're Greek, that word all means all things. Not a couple things, not most things, not everything except that stuff that one person does. Because everything that person does drives me up the wall. They just breathe and I cringe. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Some of you kids don't know what chalkboards are. Look it up later on YouTube, what that sound is, and it'll drive you nuts. Do all things, all things, every single thing you do. Every, that's every thought you have, every word that comes out of your mouth, every conversation, interaction, Journal entry, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All of them, without one complaint, without one instance of argument. That means as well, not anticipating an argument in the future and planning now how you're going to respond in that argument and building up a case on your side so you can just verbally rip that person to shreds. 
Because if they bring up one thing, well, you got a storage over here of weapons of five things they did, and you're just going to lash out at them with whatever you got. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, without complaining or arguing. Look at what he says in the continuation of that sentence. He says, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So the way, that's all one sentence, those three verses, one sentence. In order to live out our Christian lives, we're not supposed to complain, we're not supposed to argue. But he doesn't just stop there at verse 14, he builds on that. He goes on to say that uh, only by completely refraining from grumbling or complaining, from arguing, can we be blameless and innocent without blemish. He says there uh, in verse 15, if we partake in that grumbling, complaining, arguing, we become just like the crooked generation, the wicked generation, unbelievers. When we take up the task of complaining and arguing, we're just like people who don't know Jesus. He said, because it's a sign that you don't know Jesus if that defines who you are, is the way Paul's phrasing it. If we have then embraced the darkness of sin rather than shining the light of Jesus into that darkness. He says there, verse 16, if we do this grumbling, complaining, arguing, we've abandoned the word of life that's supposed to be in our hearts. And he says, if you do this, everything I've done is in vain in trying to bring you to Christ because you're acting like you don't even know Jesus. And these words are <laughs> incredibly severe. Like it seems almost harsh, like incredibly, intensely harsh for Paul to phrase it this way. But what grumbling, complaining, arguing does, it's giving our circumstances that are in this broken and temporary world all of the attention that we're supposed to be giving to Jesus. Grumbling and complaining, uh, arguing, it stems from focusing on our current circumstance in this broken temporary world rather than focusing on Jesus. We're supposed to give Jesus this attention. We're supposed to give Jesus this focus and out, an outflow of that should be praise. But rather than that, we give these broken and difficult hardship circumstances our attention and, and out of that comes praise of those things, complaints and arguing in the place of praise for Jesus. So rather than look to Jesus and trust him fully as our hope and our source of joy, we look to our situations as insurmountable problems that only add to the perception of damage to our lives. But the situation isn't hopeless. We don't have to resign ourselves to the impossible struggle against complaining. You say, it's impossible to stop complaining. I just complain. I, I, I've tried to stop, and I just can't. It just keeps coming. It's my default situation. It's how I was raised, and it's ingrained in me and built in me. It's part of my sin nature. How am I supposed to rip that out? But there's a cure for complaining, like I said a second ago. And that cure for complaining is for yourself. You can't force feed somebody else the cure for complaining. 
You can't stop somebody else from complaining. They've got to make their own decisions. As much as we would like to stop them from complaining, but what we end up doing when we try to stop somebody else from complaining, we end up complaining about their complaining. And it becomes this endless cycle of complaining. I was talking to Jared this week. We had a, an issue moving some of the sound stuff back in here. We had an is, is, still issue this morning with the streaming. We got to sort it out. Uh, but we had some feedback issues. You ever heard feedback come out of speakers? It's like this loud sound. Well, what feedback is, is it's a loop. It's sound from the speakers coming into the microphone, being shot back out of the speakers, coming back into the microphone, and it just keeps on with this loop, and it creates that grating sound. And so what happens with this complaining loop is it's this feedback of they complain, so I complain about their complaining, they complain about my complaining, and then I complain about that complaining about their complaining. And it just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going, which makes Satan happy because he's all about keeping us focused on the, the uh, keeping our attention on this stuff, on the situation, and not keeping our attention on Jesus. And so here's what Jesus has to say about this issue. So how can we cure the complaining? You see, these last few weeks we've been talking about spiritual disciplines, things we can do that help us grow in Christ to become fully mature believers. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, to the full spiritual maturity of Jesus. That's where we're headed towards. We've talked about, you know, uh, uh, focusing on Scripture, meditating on God's Word throughout the day. We talked about praying God's word throughout the day. Well, last week we looked at the power of those kind of prayers. Well, today we're going to look at another element of spiritual disciplines that can not only impact your heart and your life, but it can dynamically change every relationship you have. Look at what Jesus said. John chapter 15 Starting in verse 10. Now keep in mind as we read John 15, Jesus is telling this teaching to his disciples a mere couple of hours before he's arrested and crucified. This takes place the night before he's crucified. He says to his disciples, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now I want to focus for a second on, on verse 10. Because at first glance, it sounds like Jesus is saying, if you do my commandments, if you obey me, then you get my love. That you earn my love by being obedient. But that's not what he's saying. John 3.16 tells us God loved the world that he sent his only son. God's love came before we ever did. He already loved us when we entered the world. His love is already, it's a prerequisite for being alive is having God's love. So what he's saying here is something completely different. He's talking about a pattern of life here. He's saying, I've laid out for you a, a, a plan, a path of love. And if you don't obey my commandments, you're walking off of my plan of love. Not that I stop loving you. I keep love. My love is always there. But you're not walking in the middle of where I want you to walk. I've created this plan, this, this life plan of love for you. But if when you veer off and you don't obey what I teach and, and show people how to, how to follow me, then you're venturing away from my plan of love. You're not abiding in my love. You're not walking in my love. You're walking in your own way. 
You're trying to make your own way through the wilderness instead of walking where I've already designed a path for you to walk on. He says, if you keep my commandments, if you obey, if you follow me, you'll abide, you'll remain, you'll continue in my love. Following Jesus, look at verse 11. This is what it leads to. He says, I have spoken all this stuff to you. That you feel, if you obey my commandments, you abide in my love. I, I have these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And I notice the joy that they have in them isn't theirs. He says that my joy may be in you. It's Jesus's joy. You can't fabricate joy. It has to come from one source. True joy has to only come from one source. And Jesus says that he is the source. It's my joy in you, and then once it's in you, I want it to be full. So following Jesus down that path of love, following Jesus leads to joy. Because to follow Jesus leading to joy, our eyes have to be on Jesus at all times. If we're trying to follow Jesus and we take our eyes off of Jesus, then we venture off from where he's guiding us. We don't see where he's taking us. If you ever, as a kid, played Follow the Leader, you know the song from the old Peter Pan cartoon? Following the leader, the leader, the leader, following the leader, wherever he may go. Thank Three of you saw Peter Pan growing up. Thank you. Y'all need to go home and watch Peter Pan. Uh, A little bit of faith and trust and a little bit of pixie dust and you learn how to fly. Anyway, uh, following the leader, you got to see the leader, know where the leader's going. Because if the leader's going straight and you take your eyes off and when your eyes are off, the leader takes a left turn, you're not going to see the turn because you took your eyes off the leader. So to follow Jesus, our eyes constantly need to be on him. And if our eyes are constantly on him, what Jesus is saying in that verse is, then we will have joy. Because the joy comes from Jesus. But when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we start focusing on other things. The joy isn't there. If you know Jesus, and you choose to express anything other than excessive joy, you're looking in the wrong direction. If you have Jesus, now here's the thing. If you have Jesus, you have unlimited access to unlimited joy. But that doesn't mean you have to take it up. Just because you have access to the joy doesn't mean that you are taking it down and allowing it to fill you up. Just like the health food in the back of the fridge, having it doesn't mean you ingest it. It's just there to make you feel better because you got it. Doesn't mean you're going to eat it. You go to the fridge to get it, and you veer off and go to the freezer and get the bluebell. Maybe that's not you. Maybe that's personal experience. We have access to this joy because as believers, we have access to Jesus. Jesus is always with us. But if we don't take the joy and, and consume the joy by keeping our attention focused on Jesus, then the joy just sits there and does nothing for us. Or maybe there's been a time in our lives when we were filled up with joy. But something has happened in the intervening years. Maybe life has happened. Maybe difficulties have happened. Maybe griefs have happened. Maybe issues have arisen that have, have, have uh, garnered our attention and arrested our attention away from Jesus. And we took that joy that we had and we went and we put it up on the shelf. 
and left it alone because we took our eyes off of Jesus. Now, you may say, well, I just don't, you know, feel joyful all the time. I don't feel it. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean you're not supposed to still have it. Look at Philippians chapter 4. This blew my mind. Hopefully it will blow your mind. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul writing again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. I want to point something out. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That word rejoice, to express joy, it's a command. It's not a reactionary response to a situation. Paul is commanding these people, you rejoice. Not just when you feel like it, not just when it's good, not just when everything is hunky-dory. He's commanding them, whatever situation you find yourself in, rejoice. Do it. Say, well, Paul, man, I mean, life's hard, right? I woke up, I only got three hours of sleep because crazy stuff were happening. My kids were going nuts. The dogs next door, they were barking. I just couldn't get to sleep. And then I noticed something in the house that had to get picked up. I know it was 2 a.m., but I had to pick it up. It's only got 3 a.m., and you want me to get up? The coffee machine's broken and come in here and rejoice? Paul says, yeah, man. Command, rejoice. As Paul's writing this from a Roman prison to these people. He only writes stuff that he's practicing. He's saying, rejoice. I'm commanding you to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, always, not just sometimes or every once in a while, always. And to emphasize it, he says it again. Again, I will say rejoice. Like they didn't pick it up three words before. He says it again. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Not, I mean, you got the qualifier. Rejoice in the Lord. Like I said a second ago, you can't fake joy. You can try. You can fake happiness. Happiness is, is the surface level thing. Happiness is reactionary based upon what happens. That's why the word is happiness. Your response is based on what happens. So you can get happiness. You can lose happiness based on what happens. But joy is different. Joy is, does not depend on what happens. Joy doesn't mean you're happy. Joy is a level of faith. Joy is a level of trust. Joy is a level of expression of praise because you have Jesus. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness, this is, a, uh, uh, this is a, a, uh, an effect, a cause and effect. This is an effect of joy. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. If you have joy, you're with the Lord. The Lord is right there for everyone to see. If you have joy, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You've got joy, so don't be anxious. You've got joy, don't be anxious, and you're, you're able to pray in a way you never could before because you're choosing joy. Say, so, okay, well, how? There's so much going on that's bombarding my eye sockets and my ears that I see all over the place. How can I have joy? How can I work to keep my attention on Jesus? 
Paul's not done. Verse 8, he gives us a checklist. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So there's that peace again. Peace comes when you're following Jesus, having the joy, praying. Anxiety won't be there because you're doing these things. You're thinking about these things. Alyssa, go back to verse 8 there. Look at that checklist again. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, Worthy of praise. Eight things. How many of you would say, let's just say the last hour. Let's not even go, last 48 minutes. Every thought that's been through your mind passes that checklist of eight things. Anybody? Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Has everything that passed through your mind walked down that checklist? Just like 48 minutes, you've been in church. What y'all complaining about? I know mine has not been, every thought to pass through my head, been on that checklist. Paul says, this is a, this is a process. Yeah, you're not going to get it right all the time. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. He says, but this is how you can work to, to help your mind not be so caught up in these other things. You say, I want to binge watch this show. Okay, let's, let's look at the description of the show. Let's look at why it's rated what it is, and let's look at this list again. True, honorable, oh, no. Mm. I blew that one on number two. Honorable, that show, mm, okay. Let's flip over to the other one. Uh, pure, oh, that one's, oh, pure. Mm, Paul, that's a hard one there. Lovely, no, not uh, what they're saying. That's not really that lo- commendable. Uh, it's not really worthy of praise. Excellent. Well, the cinematography is phenomenal. It's a high quality. Okay, but it doesn't pass the others. And, and excellent, is it how it's done or excellent in Christ? Well, how did I speak to that person yesterday? How did I think about that person when I scrolled past their name on social media? After we got done with that meeting, what, what first went through my head about the person I just met with? Does it pass the pass the test of these eight things. I mean, I read this, and I think, Paul, man, this is difficult. I mean, this is, <laughs> these are some high-level things. True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Paul says, think about those things. But it comes down to it, do I want joy? Do I want peace? Because following Jesus, really following Jesus, not just saying it, not just saying it like on Sundays for an hour-ish, depending on how long the preacher goes, not just saying it every once in a while, but really following Jesus, this is what it looks like. And it's hard, y'all. I mean, it's, it's hard. In our culture, in our world, in our own, honestly, I mean, myself, selfishness and sinfulness to pursue these things. 
Which is why he starts the whole thing off with rejoice in the Lord. Because we can't do it by ourselves. I was counseling a guy just the other day who was trying in his own self-discipline to, to fix his life. I told him, man, you can't do it by yourself. You got to stop. That's why you keep messing up. Because you're trying to do it all on your own. Self-discipline is all about self. You got to turn to Jesus. Jesus can help you. If you're following him, if you're walking, if you're abiding in that path of love that he set out, then you can find the joy that we're commanded to express. Thinking about those things there in verse 8, joy will then be waiting for us. Joy is an act of obedience. It's not a feeling. We're commanded to rejoice, meaning it's a choice we make. You know, to rejoice means to express joy, to, to show joy. And if we have the joy of Jesus, then we express it. Because to have joy means to express joy. You can't have it and not express it. If you've taken it down off of the shelf and you've applied it to your life, you're going to show it for everybody to see. Now, don't raise your hand, but... Have you ever seen somebody or walked with somebody or talked with somebody who epitomizes joy? I mean, they just ooze it. It's, it's splattering all over the place. It's the image of, uh, like, you ever seen a giant cooler, you know, and you fill this giant cooler up with whatever, ice or water, and it, it will hold it. But if you undo the stopper, all of it's going to flow out no matter how much you pour back in. It's just going to keep flowing out the stopper. Look at that cooler as your life and the stuff you pour in it as joy. And what we end up doing is we un, uh, uh, uncork, unpop the stopper in our own lives, and we're leaking joy all over the place because we're not, we're not retaining it. But when we're filled up with joy, like the cooler, when it's filled up with some kind of liquid, and let's say you get some junior high boys to carry that down a, a, a crowded walkway, how many people on that crowded walkway are going to be Covered in water because the junior high boys carrying that cooler is wide open. Every single one of them. So the image is we're supposed to be an open cooler filled with joy that is sloshing onto everybody around us. How much joy did you get on that person who's sitting next to you today in that green pew? How much joy did you get on the people who were riding in the car with you on the way to church this morning? How much joy did you get on, or how much joy are you going to get on the person at the restaurant you're going to go eat lunch at? Or at your house, who you're going to eat lunch with. How much joy are you going to get on people today? you got to have it before you can get it on somebody else. To have joy is to express it. we got to choose joy because we're following Jesus. And Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he writes about this. He reminds his readers in 1 Peter what God has done for them through Jesus. Before he reminds them to rejoice, look at what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, very beginning of his book. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, first stuff he says after he says this letter is from Peter. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, he's writing, it's all about Jesus. 
resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, eternal life in heaven. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, God's done all this for you. It's so incredible. It's so amazing. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. You've got Jesus, and Jesus has saved you. Jesus has given you eternal life. Jesus has given you heaven. Jesus has provided for you. In this, you rejoice. And look at what he says next. He says, though now, for a little while, if necessary, I love how he says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, when Peter says trials here, He's not talking about somebody getting the closer parking spot at Walmart. He's not talking about the difficult person at your work. The people Peter's writing to are being persecuted for their faith. Like people busting in their house, beating them up, killing their relatives because they believe in Jesus. That's what he's talking about when he says trials. Now life does cause trials and problems and griefs and difficulties, yes. But specifically that's what he's writing about here. He says, you're going through that. But he already said, Jesus provided all this, so rejoice. But sometimes you go through trials. Verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you rejoice because of what Jesus did, even though you're going through difficult stuff. And your faith is growing as you're going through this difficult stuff because you're rejoicing. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. Again, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, he ties joy to salvation. He ties joy to to Jesus, this inexpressible joy can only be experienced and witnessed. It can't be described. It'd be like trying to describe what cake is like to somebody who has never heard words. It'd be very difficult. It'd be easier just to give them a piece of cake. <laughs> then now you know what it's like. We can't describe the joy of Jesus to somebody who doesn't have it. You've got to give them Jesus so they can have the joy and experience the joy. It's inexpressible joy. It's filled with glory, this joy. Joy isn't a feeling. It doesn't come from a reaction. It can't be felt. Joy is a decision. And it can only be made by somebody who knows Jesus because joy comes from Jesus. Joy comes from Jesus. And so we have to choose Jesus and choose joy. When we choose Jesus, we choose joy. If we keep our, our, our mind's attention and our heart's affection on Jesus, we're choosing joy because he leads us to where joy is. It's found in him. That doesn't mean you ignore everything in your life and all the difficulties. That doesn't mean you'll never have difficulties. He actually promises us. You follow me, you're going to have difficulties. It's going to be hard. 
But even in the midst of the difficulty, you can still have joy. Choose Jesus, choose joy. And so you have to decide ahead of time what you're going to choose. Because when the situation arises, we have difficulty making decisions in the moment. It's like when you go to bed at night, you've got to decide in the morning you're going to wake up when the alarm goes off. Because if you don't decide ahead of time, you're not going to get up and the alarm's going to keep going off and you're going to be late. You've got to decide ahead of time, I'm going to get up and go to church. You've got to decide ahead of time, I'm going to get up and spend time with the Lord. I'm going to get up and go work out. You've got to decide ahead of time, otherwise when you, it happens, when the moment of decision comes, you're going to decide on the easiest way or the default. And so you have to decide ahead of time to choose Jesus and choose joy. Let's go ahead and there's one more scripture I want you to turn to. It's in the book of Nehemiah, Old Testament. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah went back to Israel from Babylon where his people had been captured. And he was going to help build the wall that was around the city to protect the people. And in the process of building the wall and organizing the people to build the wall, there were other people in the region who who came and made life difficult. They said all kinds of mean things. They said all kinds of lies and fabrications about Nehemiah, about his people, about God. There were other people who believed just like Nehemiah. Other Jews came to where they were doing this, and they did the same thing. They lied. They said all kinds of stuff about Nehemiah, the people, about God. But Nehemiah just kept going. Nehemiah just kept looking to the Lord. And look at what he told the people in response to what they were going through. It's just in Nehemiah, it's at the very end of the verse, Nehemiah 8, verse 10. The last thing he says to him in this section here, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You're able to do this because you have the joy of the Lord. You're able to keep going because the Lord is with you, because you're following the Lord and he's leading you to joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You're not going to accomplish this and persevere in this if you don't have the joy of the Lord. You're going to crumble under the weight if you don't have the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Well, it's the strength of those who know the Lord, who know Jesus who constantly choose to follow Jesus because you choose Jesus, you choose joy. And we're commanded to rejoice. We're commanded to express joy because God desires us to be joyful. But even though we're supposed to be joyful, the distractions of this world tend to make us joy empty instead of joyful. We know we should be joyful. We know we can be at times joy-filled. Maybe we've got Maybe not joy-filled, but maybe we're, we're, the joy is our appetizer. We don't really fill up on it. We just get a little bit, and it, 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 it'll last us for a while, and we're not joyful. Maybe we got that, we have a joy leak. And then we've got to examine ourselves. What's causing the joy to leak right out of us? You say, well, so-and-so stole my joy. Well, that, that, that situation stole my joy. But if joy is a decision, nothing can steal it from you. If joy is a decision, as it, Scripture shows us, then not having joy is also a decision. 
That person didn't steal your joy. That situation didn't steal your joy. You chose not to take it up. You chose not to use it. What we're doing in that moment is we're just taking the blame that's really ours and placing it on somebody else. Well, it's their fault. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. They did it. They made me do it. It's like the old comedian who used to say, the devil made me do it. Well, you can't blame everything. I mean, you make your own decisions. You make your own choices. They can, other, the enemy, the world, our own selfishness can tempt us and, and, and try to get us away from where God wants us to go. But at the end of the day, it's our decision whether or not we go that route or we choose Jesus and choose joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I'll tell you how I've been trying to do it. I've told you all, everything I bring to you as a church you know, and, and challenge you to do, I've already been trying to practice and experiment on myself, different ways of how to do this thing. And especially during the spiritual disciplines deal, you know, you try to do anything in spiritual disciplines, the enemy's going to try to mess you up. And so you try to pursue the path of joy by focusing on Jesus, stuff's going to come at you this afternoon that you haven't seen in a long time. Because the enemy knows if he can just get you to mess up once, he can get you to mess up again and get you to mess up again because we'll end up giving up and saying, I, 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 this is too hard, I'm going to stop and just go back to the way I used to be, the way I was thinking. And I'm not going to make this commitment to try to pursue joy and choose joy. It's too difficult. Well, what I did this week as situations would arise that were less than joyful. Maybe, Jared, like efforts trying to get the sanctuary warm for two and a half weeks. I would quote this verse almost like a mantra. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Getting that HVAC system to work isn't my strength. Because it's just going to break. It's going to break again sometime. We're praying it lasts another two decades, but it might break again. But that can't be my strength because it breaks. I can't put my faith in an HVAC unit. I can't put my strength in what somebody else thinks about me. I can't put my strength in somebody else's happiness because that happiness is going to go away. It's going to wax and wane with the situation and their mood's going to change. And then my strength is gone because I put my hope in that. My strength can't be my health because my health is going to fail. Can't be somebody else's health because their health is going to fail. I don't know if you know this or not. We're all going to die one day. Surprise. Spoiler. So you can't put your strength in that. What does the scripture say? It's allotted for man once to die. And then we get heaven. You don't believe in Jesus, scripture says you get the judgment. We have Jesus. If you believe, you get heaven. That's far better than this. Far better than this. But my, my strength can't be wrapped up in whether or not I feel good today. Whether or not my, me, my knee doesn't hurt today. Whether or not you know, <laughs> I get on a ladder and break another bone. I, 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 uh, my strength can't be wrapped up in that. I mean, I know my wife is streaming this at home right now, and we got a kid who's not feeling good. And I know my mom is going to watch this this week, but odds are I'm going to get on a ladder again. Honestly, confession time, 
I did when I still had the the cast on. But it's just going to happen, right, Carolyn? It's just going to happen. Stuff's got to get done even when you break stuff. But my strength can't be in whether or not I break another bone. My strength has to be in the joy of the Lord. Because all that other stuff is going to fail. All that other stuff is going to mess up. And so what happened this week when stuff would go wrong or stuff would happen or somebody would say this or this situation would go and I could feel the irritation and the frustration rising or the, the, the discouragement rising, this would come to mind because I was constantly thinking about this passage, bringing it to y'all today. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Sometimes I would have to say it just over, joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy of the Lord is my strength. Don't, don't think, oh, oh, that's Satan trying to pull my, my thoughts over there. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Shut up. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Stop thinking that joy of the Lord is my strength. you got to shout down those voices because the joy of the Lord is my strength. Does that mean that every, time, every moment this week I was completely joyful? Nope. Not even close. But I was a little more joyful this week than the week before. Because through Scripture, my attention was able to focus more on the Lord. And I was able to follow him more closely. In a perfect way, no. I just told you, I wasn't joyful all week. But there was more joy because I was able to keep my attention on Jesus. Able to refocus my attention on Jesus. And so that's the question for you. Can you refocus your attention and choose Jesus, and choose joy this week. Will you try it? Just give it a shot. As we're doing through this spiritual discipline series, try it for seven days. Maybe take that, you know, Nehemiah 8.10b, the, the last part of that verse that's up here on the screen, and you need to imprint this on your heart. You need to tattoo it on the back of your eyelids. Not really. But you need to have it everywhere you are so it's constantly before your head. I mean, you can memorize that, right? What is that? Eight words? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Okay, we're going to do a practice run here. Y'all repeat after me. I'm going to go slow. The joy of, I just want to see for you attention. the Lord is your strength. Let's personalize it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, all to, you think y'all can remember eight words? We're going to do it. Okay, you ready? I'm just, prep, I'm just prepping you. I know you can read. It's on the screens. I know every one of you were looking at the screens and not at me. Turn it off the screen, Alyssa. Let's see if they can remember eight words. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Great job. Y'all got that. Think you can remember this later on? I mean, this afternoon is some NFL football. My team is long out. So it'll be a lot easier to have the joy of the Lord as my strength. But we're used to that, right, Brandon? We are. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Will you try it? Just these next seven days and just see, see, see if you're not more joyful this week than last. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to stumble. Stuff's going to mess up. It's just, that's just the way it is. You're not perfect yet because we're not in heaven yet. People will try to have you meet their expectations of perfection. 
you're not going to get it. Don't hold that standard for yourself either. Look to Jesus. Let him be your standard. Follow him and find joy. Choose Jesus. Choose joy. Maybe you need to choose Jesus today. You've had it in your mind that you've known about Jesus. We did Christmas a month ago, and Jesus was all over the place, but you didn't really follow him. You don't really believe in him. And what you need to do is stop knowing about Jesus. You need to keep knowing about Jesus, but stop just knowing about Jesus and start believing in Jesus in your heart. Knowing he's your Lord, knowing he's your creator, knowing he's your savior. And change your direction eternally. Will you choose Jesus today? As these passages of scripture, particularly 1 Peter, showed us, you have to choose Jesus before you can choose joy. You can't have true joy until you choose Jesus. Maybe you've experienced impersonation joy. Maybe all you've ever eaten is sugar-free bluebell. You get you a scoop of the real stuff. That other stuff's just cheap imitation. Not cheap. But it's just imitation. It's not real until you have the real stuff. Maybe all you've eaten is Beyond Meat hamburgers. You get you some good dead cow, and it's going to change your life. It's so much better. Get the real thing. Choose Jesus. Choose joy. Do y'all remember the old slogan? I think it's still their slogan of Coca-Cola. The real thing. To them, every other cola is imitation. It's not the real thing. You got to have the real thing to have the joy. Not that Coke will give you the joy. It'll give you something, but not joy. You got to choose Jesus to get joy. Will you choose the real thing today, Jesus, and choose joy? If you want to believe in Jesus for the first time, I'll be at the front. I want to talk to you. Jared will be at the back. He'll want to talk to you. I want to celebrate with you. We want to show you Jesus so you can experience that joy, that eternity, that heaven that he spoke about. Will you believe in Jesus today? Choose Jesus today for the first time. Or maybe follower of Jesus, you need to choose Jesus so that you can choose joy. Choosing joy instead of choosing complaints. Choosing joy instead of choosing attention on yourself. You say, isn't complaining just part of human nature? Go read Numbers chapter 11. That'll tell you all you need to know about what God thinks about complaining. You say, I never read Numbers 11. You read it and you'll be like, whoa, God does not like complaining at all. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Just give you some homework. Read Numbers 11. It will explain to you both at the beginning of the chapter and the end all that God thinks about complaining. But if your focus, if your mind is on Jesus, joy will come. Choose Jesus today. Choose joy.